Hello, and welcome to The 5 By, your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah takes flight in Wingspan, Meeple Lady Choo Choo chooses the train game 1846, I decorate the Palace Lake in Lanterns the Harvest Festival, and Luke plucks marbles and builds engines in gizmos. But first, Ruth dives into Otis. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a game I bought and tried on a whim, only to discover a surprise favorite. Set in a post-apocalyptic world in which the world's cities have been submerged by rising waters, Otis places two to four players in charge of a team of divers. The colony needs certain raw materials to fulfill contracts, and as a member of the colony, you're trying to use your team to gather materials together and get to those contracts first. Basically helping the colony while also helping your own reputation in the process. Designed by Claude Luchini and illustrated by Paul Maffayon, this 2017 Pearl Games release feels unlike anything else in my collection, mainly due to the revolving nature of each player's dive team. Each player has an underwater base, which has five different levels to it. On a turn, they're going to activate the hatch on one of those levels by sliding the matching key token over, and then taking this sponsor action on the main colony board that's associated with that level. They're then going to activate the diver currently at that depth to perform their action. As the members of each team are specialized, depending on who's at the level is going to make a difference in what action happens, with actions involving things like salvaging materials, upgrading the player's tech, or even engaging in espionage. Once the player turns in any contracts they manage to fulfill during this process, then the used hatch key is going to move to the bottom of their board, while the diver surfaces, moving to the top of their board and pushing the rest of the dive team down one level. On future turns, that hatch is now unavailable for use. Well, for the most part. Once enough hatch keys have been used, then they all refresh and go back to where they were. But if a player needs to access the same level sooner, well, each player has a wild X key token available to them. But using an X key causes the sponsor tiles on the main colony board to shuffle, similarly to the way the diver tiles shuffle at the end of each turn. And because this shuffling happens before the player gets to take their sponsor action, they're going to have to remember to take the shuffle into account. I love that Otis uses two conveyor belt-like systems between the divers and the sponsor actions. But since only one of these is affected by other players, you don't feel like all your plans are being destroyed before they ever come to fruition. And while your own diver line normally changes every turn, well, there's even ways for you to mitigate this. Batteries can be spent to either move divers up or down a few levels before activation, or you can use a battery to activate the oxygen reserve, essentially stopping the diver from surfacing at the end of a turn. Careful use of these types of resources can let you set up the perfect turn. And when it all comes together, well, it feels fantastically satisfying. That's one of the main reasons I love Otis. It's puzzly and interesting, and when you manage to pull off the right combination of sponsor and diver action, well, it feels great, and you feel pretty smart for doing so. But of course, the minute you do all of this and get the contract fulfilled, well, now you're back to square one and you've got to look at what you've got, where your divers are, and figure out a whole new puzzle. The game itself ends after the round in which a player reaches the 18-point mark on the track, and so because this is essentially a race, you're kind of faced with the decision on whether you're going to go for the big contracts and just try to get a whole bunch of points in one go, or whether you want to snatch up all the little contracts and just try to get there fast enough before anyone can catch you. I've seen players reach and set off that threshold in either way, and I've seen players do successfully with a lot of different approaches, so it really feels like a game where you can dig in and play with the possibilities. 
the heart of Otis is certainly the cycle of specialist dive tokens on your board. And helping keep track of these rotating lines of divers are double-layered player boards that do a fantastic job of lining things up and helping you slide divers and key tokens where they need to be. Adorning Otis's player boards, as well as the main colony board, is Paul Maffayon's wonderful art. His illustrations are just lovely and have a surprising amount of color for a post-apocalyptic theme. This isn't all browns and dust-covered landscape. Maffayon has managed to bring to life a world of interesting characters, and what I really love is that if you look closely at the main colony board, you're going to see every single one of your dive team members is also depicted on the board doing something appropriate to their ability. Combined with the substantial double-layered player boards and the other quality components, it all just makes Otis a very satisfying game to set up and look at. I mean, the box insert even has a dive locker-esque compartment that closes with a Velcro tab. It's a really nice touch, and it helps corral components for people like me who store their games vertically, but it certainly wasn't needed, and it just is a little whimsical, and I kind of like that. Honestly, my only complaint in terms of production quality is the somewhat misleading box art that I think has actually hindered the game's success. Most people I've shown the box to assume the game is either about Atlantis or something vaguely Greco-Roman, not noticing that in addition to this sort of statue head that they're looking at, there's also the submerged remains of a bus in a city street. It's a shame because I don't see the game getting a lot of play, and I'm hoping that at least by talking about it I might inspire some of you to give it a try. The theme is interesting, the art and design is lovely, and the game itself is full of moments where you're really not sure how you're going to proceed before suddenly inspiration strikes and you pull off something amazing. I highly recommend looking past the box art and giving Otis a try if you get the chance. And if you remember to, feel free to let me know how it went, because I'm really curious. When I'm not sending out a team to salvage the depths, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I don't always buy the new hotness games right away, but I got to try Wingspan at a local con two weeks ago, and I liked it so much I bought it on the spot. Designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and published by Stonemeyer Games in 2019, Wingspan is a card game about birds. You spend the game collecting birds and placing them in their habitat. There are three bird habitats, forest, grassland, and wetland, represented by rows on your player mat. The three rows also represent the core actions in Wingspan, draw bird cards, get food tokens, and lay eggs on bird cards. Each bird is worth points at the end of the game, but that's only part of their value. The more birds you have in a row, the more effective that core action will be. Plus, birds have abilities that come into play when you take a core action. Say you have three birds in the wetland row, and you take the wetland action, draw cards. First you draw the cards, then you go through the wetland birds one by one and activate each. Ideally, you try to chain bird abilities together. I played a game of Wingspan where I had a bird that let me take a free wheat token next to a bird that let me discard a wheat token to draw two cards from the deck and tuck them behind the bird. Every card tucked behind a bird is worth a victory point at the end of the game, so every time I took that action, I got two free victory points. Sometimes bird abilities are related to the behavior of the actual bird. Many predator birds, like owls, have a hunting ability, where you draw a card from the deck and look at the size of the bird on that card. If the bird you just drew is small enough, the owl eats it, and you get to tuck the card behind the owl. But if the bird is too big, it gets away and you have to discard it. 
This has led to some funny moments, like in one game when a barred owl tried to hunt and drew a California condor, which is almost three times its size. We all had to laugh at the idea of an owl trying to fly away with a condor in its claws. Not every bird has a power that gets activated when you take the core action. Some bird powers happen only once when played. Some are triggered when another player takes an action. And a few of the most valuable birds have no ability, just a lot of victory points. There are many different ways to get victory points in Wingspan. As I mentioned, there are points for each bird you play and points for cards tucked under your birds. Every egg you lay is worth a point, and every player starts the game with a bonus card that gives you a secret goal to work toward, like birds that have a color in their name or birds that eat cherries. The bonus cards can steer you towards a strategy, although of course you need to draw cards that work with your bonus. There are also victory point goals at the end of every round, like who has the most birds in the grassland, or who has the most eggs laid in platform nests. One nice tension of Wingspan is that you start the game with eight action tokens per round, but at the end of every round, you use one of those tokens to mark your place on the end of round goal. That takes away one action in the next round. By the final round, you have only five actions. Now, by the end of the game, you've probably played birds with good abilities, so those five actions will do more than they would have early on. But still, this restriction gives a sense of urgency to the end of a game of Wingspan that I find lacking in a lot of engine-building games. That urgency is needed to counterbalance my only real criticism of Wingspan. By the end of the game, when you're just trying to get points, laying eggs is usually the best action you can take. I've played Wingspan seven times now, and one of the most effective strategies I've seen is to spend the first three rounds playing birds that have room for a lot of eggs, and then the entire final round is just taking the lay eggs action over and over. It's a point-generating machine, but kind of boring. I'd like to see some kind of balancing mechanism that makes the value of laying eggs a little less lopsided in the final round. The component quality in Wingspan is as good as you'd expect from Stonemaier Games. There's gorgeous art by Ana Maria Martinez Jaramillo, Natalia Rojas, and Beth Sobel. Each bird card is illustrated with a unique bird, 170 in all, and a little factoid about the bird at the bottom of each card. There are chunky custom dice for the food, and a dice tower shaped like a bird feeder to roll them in. And maybe the best part, the eggs you lay look like tiny foil-wrapped chocolate eggs. I know I'm not the only person planning a wingspan party for when Easter candy shows up in stores. There isn't much player interaction in Wingspan, and what there is is typically positive. Abilities that trigger when someone else takes an action, or birds that give everyone a food token, not just you. You do have to pay attention to what other players are doing, but there is no take that in this lovely game about birds. The theme and components make Wingspan a joy to spend time with, but that's not why I love it. I love it because it's fun, a satisfying engine builder, and it comes with a really solid solo game. I've played solo twice now and haven't won yet, but next time for sure. And that's Wingspan. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not rolling for cherries in the bird feeder, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. If the world of 18xx is something you've been interested in, but never knew where to start, check out 1846 The Race for the Midwest. Published in 2016 by GMT Games, 1846 is a great introductory game into the world of 18xx. The rulebook for 1846 is a little daunting to go through on your first go-around. I'd highly recommend finding someone who can teach and run the game so that your first experience is as smooth as possible. There's quite a lot to keep up with, and having a game of all inexperienced players could potentially turn you off from these types of games, and that would be unfortunate. 
because 18xx games are fantastic. Well, fantastic if you love super crunchy, math-heavy, puzzly, and economic games that manipulate the stock market and can be sometimes kind of mean. There's a whole bunch of 18xx's in the wild, and if you learn one 18xx, many of the other games are built upon similar concepts with slight tweaks in gameplay. So really, you'll be ready to jump into all the other train games soon enough. In 1846, three to five railroad tycoons are competing to earn money and build the best stock portfolio by investing in and operating railroad corporations within the Midwest during 1846 to 1935. Players begin the game with $400 and begin first drafting private companies that may provide some income for the first part of the game. The drafting here is important because many other 18xx games start with an auction, and if you're not a player with any 18xx experience, a misstep at this starting auction can be brutal. In 1846, each round consists of a stock round and two operating rounds. Gameplay continues until players break the bank, and the person with the most cash in their personal stock and the value of their stock shares wins the game. A large component of 1846 is that each corporation has their own treasury, which is used to lay down tracks or upgrade tracks and purchase trains, and this treasury is completely separate from the player's personal stock portfolio and bank. The crux of the game is balancing when to infuse money into your corporation to do actions or fully pay yourself and other stockholders out, either action affecting the stock price of the corporation. During a stock round, players take turns buying stock from the stock market or a share from a corporation's treasury, paying the market price for it. Players can also purchase the president's certificate, which is two stocks of a corporation, and launch that corporation and put it onto the map. You get to select its initial stock value. Each corporation has exactly 10 shares. The person holding the most shares is the president of the corporation. Then comes two operating rounds. Each operating round consists of issuing shares to the market to raise capital, and then laying down one yellow tile onto the board. The player can also lay down a second yellow tile or upgrade one tile. All tile lays and upgrades cost money, depending on the cost printed on the empty hex or the pre-printed tile which it replaces. Upgrades must be done in a specific color order, yellow, green, brown, and gray, and the new tiles must preserve its type, city or not, and the orientation of the previous tracks laid out. City tiles have spaces for tokens to be placed by corporations for a cost, these tokens have the potential to block other corporations from growing through the city, which is bad news for running your route. And what is running your route? Depending on what type of train you have at the start of the operating round, this determines how many hexes you can reach and how much revenue you'll be receiving for that operating round. Next comes the payout. To pay full dividends, divide revenue by 10 and pay this amount to each shareholder for their personal bank. To pay half dividends, divide total revenue by 2. Round this amount to the nearest $10 and retain it in the corporate treasury. Divide the remainder 10 and pay this as dividends to each shareholder. Depending on what the corporation pays out, this will determine if the price of the corporation stock goes down one, stays the same, or jumps once, twice, or three times. After you complete a corporation payout, you may purchase trains to use for the next round, if your corporation has money, as trains get very expensive very quickly. And thus begins the brain burnery dance of running your corporation so that others will invest in it so that you'll have money to do things, and so that the price of your stock increases, while making money for yourself so that you can purchase stock in hopes that it'll become valuable later in the game. Gameplay continues until the bank breaks, and 1846 usually takes about 4-5 to five hours to play 
Each player cashes out their shares at the current stock value and adds the cash in hand, and the person with the most money wins the game. Money left over in the corporation's treasury does not count toward anything in the end. If you like route building and economic stock games, and have more than a few hours to devote to a game, then 1846 could be for you. And you really, really have to not care about what the board looks like as well, because more often than not, the board and hexes for an 18xx are really boring and plain looking. And 1846 is no exception. This game, however, has excellent components, all thanks to the high-quality production from GMT. And that's 1846. Choo-choo! And this is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Hi, friends. It's time to celebrate the end of the harvest, and there's no better place than the Emperor's Palace. You and your fellow artisans will float beautiful lanterns in the palace lake, earning prestigious honor for your artistic creations. Designed by Christopher Chung, with art by Beth Solbell, and published by Renegade Game Studios in 2015, Lanterns, the Harvest Festival, is a tile-laying game for two to four players. After placing the starting tile in the center of the table, each player receives three lake tiles. All tiles have different colored lanterns on each side, the color of the side facing each player determines what lantern card they receive. There are seven different colors of lantern cards, and as players collect sets, they'll score points. On your turn, you may first spend two favor tokens to exchange one lantern card for a different lantern card from the supply. Next, you may make a dedication. This is simply turning in the required set of lantern cards for a dedication token worth a certain number of points. For example, if you're the first in a four-player game to dedicate four blue lanterns, you'll get 8 points. You may also score points for turning in 3 pairs of different colors, or 7 unique colors. Finally, place a lake tile. The tile must be adjacent to the side of an existing tile. If the tile matches a color of an adjacent tile, then the active player receives a bonus lantern card. If any of the matching tiles has a platform on them, the active player also receives a favor token for each platform. Finally, each player receives a lantern card. Starting with the active player, the side of the tile facing each player determines which lantern card they receive from the supply. The game ends when all lake tiles have been placed, and one final turn for making dedications is taken. The player with the most honor wins. Lanterns, the Harvest Festival, is one of my go-to games for new players. It's smooth, elegant, and gorgeous on the table. It's relatively simple to learn, and most games take about 30 minutes. While the classic tile-laying Carcassonne offers a bit more in terms of strategy, Lanterns is an easier game for first-timers thanks to its clear and concise rule set. There are none of those pesky Carcassonne farmers that can be tricky to score. In fact, the only rules that need explaining are the timing of using favor tokens and making a dedication. They're not hard to understand, but players often want to do them out of turn sequence. Thankfully, the player aid does a great job of showing when these actions occur during your turn. At its heart, Lanterns is a set collection game with Tau Lane as its primary mechanism. You race to collect the different sets for dedication, and score more points by dedicating before your opponents. You can score any of the dedications multiple times during the game, but only once per turn. And with a 12 card hand limit, you can't just hoard cards either, you'll eventually have to turn them in to score points. Overall, the gameplay in Lanterns is silky smooth and always makes for a pleasant and satisfying experience. I talked about Tokaido back in episode 45, and although Lanterns is a totally different game, it offers some of the same relaxing vibes of Tokaido. And like Tokaido, there's some interesting play beneath the surface. You can thwart your opponent's plans through clever tile placement. 
or you can deny your opponents a chance to make a dedication for points by scooping up the last of a particular lantern color they need. Lanterns, the Harvest Festival, is essentially a race for points, and that's where the tension lies, since being first to make a dedication scores you the most points. Every time a dedication is made, the stack of scoring tokens dwindles for that dedication. So if you're the first to dedicate three pairs of lanterns, you'll get nine points. The second and third players to do so will only gain eight points. The components are solid, with lovely art on the tiles and cards. Kudos to Renegade for ensuring that the game can be played by colorblind players. Whenever I hear about a game of matching colors, I'm immediately hesitant due to my red-green colorblindness. Thankfully, each color is represented by a different icon. It's a simple solution that makes the game more accessible, and I hope more publishers continue to do this. For gamers who worry that lanterns may be too light for them, I'd suggest adding the expansion The Emperor's Gifts. Just as I said about Tokaido and the expansion Crossroads, I wish the publisher here would have just added the expansion into the base game and called it the Advanced Rules. With the Emperor's Gifts, new elements are added to the game, but it doesn't change the basic turn structure. Instead, you're given additional ways to earn bonuses and points. First, you're given more dedication tokens, which increase the point values for the seven unique and three pair dedications. Next, you're given pavilion meeples and gift tokens. After placing your lake tile, you may build a pavilion on top of it. Later, whenever anyone matches a color with the tile that contains your pavilion, you'll receive a gift token along with your bonus lantern card as usual. These gift tokens can be used to perform additional actions from two randomly chosen Emperor cards. These cards offer new abilities and add some nice options for gamers, such as Wild Lantern cards and new scoring opportunities like Full Houses and Five of a Kind. My favorite is the action that allows you to make a dedication at the end instead of at the start of your turn, which helps make scoring easier. Lanterns The Harvest Festival is an excellent gateway game for new players that I'd highly recommend, and I'd include the Emperor's Gift expansion if you're playing with veteran gamers or just looking for a way to increase the game's replayability. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. There was a time when I really loved Splendor. I could go on for a long time about why that love soured and I eventually sold the game, but this isn't my review of Splendor, so I won't go into detail. I will boil it down to this. I have never played a game that seemed not just to eschew, but to actively dampen player interaction like Splendor does. The game is mechanically sound. There's a reason it's one of the most popular engine builders ever made, but the numerous games I've played of it have been some of the most silent I've ever spent around a gaming table. Splendor's lofty position makes it such a massive target that a lot of people are quick to dub new engine builders with even a hint the same feel, quote-unquote, Splendor Killers. Obviously, the concept of one game somewhat objectively replacing another has been around for a very long time, but I hadn't heard or maybe just hadn't noticed the term something killer used nearly as much before the legions of would-be Splendor Assassins. But for me, the game that actually lives up to the title is Gizmos. Gizmos is a 2018 card game designed by Phil Walker Harding and published by Cool Mini or Not, or as the cool kids say, come on! No? Just... Just me? Okay. Walker Harding's designs have always leaned toward accessible, and as such he's been responsible for some massively popular games over the last few years, not the least of which are the Sushi Goes and Baron Park. Oh, and Kakao. And Imatep. Yeah, those are all him. 
With Gizmos, he's managed to build one of the purest engine builders I've ever played. It mashes up aspects of Splendor with bits of Ascension and some Century Spice Road, with a dash of Oh My Goods for flavor. It has the familiar three-tiered card market and you're building a tableau, but every card in your tableau has a purpose beyond just providing permanent currency. Some augment your limitations, others help you convert energy you need to buy more cards, and the rest have abilities that trigger every time you take one of four actions. The actions are simple. File a card by reserving it for you alone, Splendor style. Build a card from the display or your own file using energy you've collected. Research one of the face-down decks, drawing a number of cards and either building or filing one of them. Or pick an energy. It's that pick mechanism that a lot of people have accused of being a gimmick, but after playing the game I can tell you it genuinely isn't. See, instead of poker chips or cards or punchboard chits, the energy in gizmos comes in the form of plastic marbles in four colors, which you dump into this pretty cleverly designed dispenser. The bucket at the top holds all the energy, and they roll down a little chute to expose six at a time, becoming the row that players can draw from. It's cutesy and definitely photogenic, but the purpose it serves is phenomenal. Without a cumbersome deck of energy cards to shuffle or an app assist, this energy dispenser allows for randomization, limited availability, blind draws, and easy discards without forcing a player to do any of the upkeep. Could it be replicated with a deck of cards? Absolutely. Would anyone want to manage the logistics of that? Not even a little bit. Smoothing out the fiddliness of energy production while simultaneously allowing for a small amount of randomization gives players back the brain space they need to manage their actual engine. Because unlike Splendor and its previous Murderer Century Spice Road, the tableau of triggered effects you can build in Gizmos can be really spectacular. Even though these cards reside on the table instead of a deck or in your hand, this is where Gizmos reminds me of deck builders like Ascension. Each card effect is triggered by the base actions you take, but some of those effects themselves are also actions, which then trigger other cards, with potentially more actions. If you play your cards right, pun absolutely intended, by turn 4 or 5 you'll begin taking longer and longer turns with awesome sets of cascading effects. And this is where Gizmos really shines. It makes you want to show off your engine, and it makes you want to pay attention to other players' turns. Even when you're losing, watching a well-constructed tableau fire off effect after effect is still awesome and entertaining. Turns never feel as contemplative as they do in Splendor, nor as unsatisfying as they can sometimes be in Century Spice Road. And even though the endgame accelerates pretty quickly, the game also lasts long enough to allow your engine to run wild for a few turns before it's all over. Sometimes games get so mired in producing interesting decisions, they forget how to be fun. Gizmos manages both, and reinforces that fun with colorful graphic design by Julia Ferrari and Matthew Harlout, and hilarious, completely nonsensical illustrations by Giovanni Guimaraes, Hannah Cardoso, and Fernanda Montoni. That color and whimsy elevate an already great experience above and beyond its blander competition. I still love Century Spice Road for its hand and resource management, and put it in a different class than the more tableau-focused engine building of Gizmos. But for me, of the sea of splendor killers that have splashed against its supposedly impenetrable walls, Gizmos is the one that got through. The king is dead. Long live the king. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games pretty much everywhere, including BGG, Twitter, and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming. You've been listening to The 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening.
The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.